Well, it's Wednesday, July 1st, and it's time for another Kevin Prendeville show that hasn't changed the weather from being gray, rainy, and quite loud. But quite novelly, we have uh, Goldman Sachs saying that if we nationally mandate masks, it will save us a trillion dollars. And we have on us uh, mayors in different cities now saying that we need a universal basic income. On top of all of that, we have uh, business news with Subway um, uh, in their two for ten dollar uh, foot long meal. And no, it's not a promotion or anything. Actually, franchisees are pushing back against um, against Subway and the chain because they say it's going to hurt their bottom line. And we're also going to follow up with Facebook ads and the current boycott. Uh, stay tuned for the Kevin Prendeville Show, and up next, the opening salvo. Well, this is the opening salvo. This is a time where not only do we set the tone for the show, but we put some food for thought out there, and we um, make sure that those first shots fired are ones that make you think and change the perspective for the better. Now, Many people may not remember in 2008 what happened with other countries, but I remember vividly in not only in school, but in recent follow-up uh, in a few days, over these last few days, uh, Zimbabwe, for one, and I'm not just picking on them, but they had a situation in which they became another country that used the U.S. dollar for their currency. Now, the reason they had to make that change, because they did have their own dollar beforehand, was because in order to pay for many of the programs and businesses that their dictator had taken over, they had a really old-style dictatorship, almost like a 20th century dictatorship, where uh, there was no private property. It was pretty close to communism, actually. There was no private property allowed unless the business was absolutely loyal to the government, as in, you know, in its advertisement, it praised the government, uh, a lot of things that you see in China today. And so because of that, a lot of people, residents that had money, um, as Zimbabwe, before their dictatorship started, was doing okay. Um, but any residents that had any sort of capital, they left. People who owned real estate there, they left. There was just, they didn't see any reasoning uh, in staying and having to either uh, submit to the high tax rates uh, and praise the dictator for doing so um, or have their land and capital confiscated. And in response to that, the Zimbabwe dictator and government uh, eventually came in and would print money for programs, uh, print money to support uh, his military. They would um, not only take over these businesses, but, um, you know, they at many times it would run a loss because many of the Zimbabwe people did not have all that much money. And as a result, the compounding effect on inflation uh, was one of the worst in history. Economists said at one point before it became uncalculable um, 
by modern metrics, uh, it reached an estimated 750 trillion percent. <laughs> I mean, they were. This is a country that was printing trillion dollar bills, and these would be thrown around like pennies. That's how bad it got. You couldn't buy anything in Zimbabwe money. And for a while, they just decided, okay, we're not going to have a currency. So civilians would pick up U.S. dollars and euros and, um, you know, whatever paper money they could find uh, from foreign countries until eventually Zimbabwe decided that they were going to move to the U.S. dollar. And this is a fascinating story you can, uh, I would really encourage you to read up on. Uh, anything from just a quick uh, Wikipedia read to news articles from the day, you can go anything from, and I don't usually recommend them, but you know, you can go anything from CNN Business to Fox Business to Forbes and Wall Street. Uh, just type in anything, you know, Zimbabwe switches to U.S. dollar, uh, you know, Zimbabwe inflation. It's it's not a story gets, that gets thrown around there often, but it's chilling to what can happen when a government has no idea what they're doing with monetary policy. And notice how I said a government, because it's not just Zimbabwe. It can be any government at any time in which the politicians have no idea the destructive power of inflation. Because their solutions are always just to print more money. Print more money, pay for it later, maybe not play, that's the part of the problem. Don't pay for it later, just inflate, inflate it away. And all it does is hurt the savers, is hurt the people who don't make millions of dollars a year. All it does is compound social issues because people without any money uh, are very angry that they don't feel like they can provide for their family. Take that away from somebody, you get anger issues. You do that to society, you amplify those issues. There's a reason that same dictator in Zimbabwe is not in power anymore. So we look at many of the statements made today by our politicians many of the stories that we're going to cover. And I want to come back to this central issue. Inflation is not to be toyed with. Inflation killed the West. And I would issue a warning to anybody who doesn't have precious metals as part of their portfolio. We have some very incompetent people in power right now. Don't fuel it by only having paper money. And with that, we'll close the opening salvo and move into our first story. And this is about another potential stimulus package. Stay tuned. Well, as the rain turns to a bit of a drizzle here, um, my confidence in the direction of the country, uh, I think, can also be exemplified by uh, the weather.
quite dreary, but with any luck, it'll come to pass. Now, there's a story here on uh, Fox Business. Uh, Trump recently had an interview with Fox Business uh, News, and he uh, it was actually quite reserved interview. There's nothing in terms of, uh, you know, insults that he threw around or, or anything like that. No Sleepy Joe references. And I mean, I think that's when he's in his element. But this this was him addressing the situation. And I think I think he truly believes what he's saying here. Um, and that's not a great thing. Again, I, I'll be the first one to tell you that I will be voting for Trump. I support this presidency. He's leagues better than the alternative. And he's the best shot we have at maintaining some semblance of our Constitution. That being said, one of the fears I had going into his presidency was that he is not all that fiscally conservative. Now, we needed to rebuild the military. I understand that. Our infrastructure was falling apart. You got to pay for that somehow. I support rolling back regulations. But when it comes to an economic crisis like this, even though it was forced on the people, it was forced on businesses, it was forced on corporations by, again, incompetent bureaucrats who only care about either getting reelected or pointing... Uh, uh, to the American people and saying, you know, I did my job, don't blame me. Don't burn my house down. That being said, stimulus, direct stimulus payments to the people and stimulus in general doesn't work. As we said in 2008, and Simon Black points this out wonderfully, we added $12 trillion of debt through those bailouts to get $7 trillion of growth in the GDP. We did not win that crisis. My point here is that through these direct stimulus payments, we have to keep in mind that this money isn't free. Aside from the guarantee that it's going to raise taxes in order to keep programs funded, the other solution on the other side is going to be inflation, which we talked about in the opening salvo, and the eventual conclusion of inflation. But I want to read to you a, a passage from Milton Freeman's book when he was talking about Keynesian economics, where a lot of modern monetary theory lies. So Milton Freeman wrote a fantastic rebuttal to John Maynard Keynes um, and essentially tore apart Keynes' thesis in, in just the introduction. So I have his book here with me, uh, A Theory of the Consumption Function. You can get it on Amazon uh, rather cheap, probably 10 bucks or something like that. You might even be able to find a a copy online. Um, I'm sure some college has it in their archive. Um, but listen to this. this. This is the introduction, right? After the table of contents and everything, 
and it's so key to understanding the problems we have today. The relation between aggregate consumption or aggregate savings and aggregate income, generally termed the consumption function, has a, occupied a major role in the economic thinking ever since Keynes made it a keystone of his theoretical structure and then general theory. Keynes took it for granted that current consumption expenditure, and this is important, Keynes took it for granted that the current consumption expenditure is a highly dependable and stable function of current income. That the amount of aggregate consumption mainly depends on the amount of aggregate income, which he termed a fundamental psychological role in any modern community that, when real income is increased, will not increase its consumption by an equal absolute amount. Now, essentially what Keynes is saying is that spending increases with income, and it's a, it's a real number, it's a measurable number, that income after taxes, I'm, I'm sorry, income before taxes, that's uh, aggregate, kind of a net value here, that essentially if you, if you just hand people money, they'll spend money. But Friedman goes on here, and he points out a few facts, um, and this part is central. Before we get back to the story of the day, uh, this, I think, will help illustrate uh, why whenever these stories come up, I think we need to cover them. Uh, and I want to preface this with saying that uh, Keynes, and this is from Friedman, that Keynes essentially took data from just after World War One and essentially said that um, because the data said that, or seemed to confirm what Keynes had said, which was that if you raise the real or the aggregate income, aggregate spending um, or investment in the economy would increase. But at the end here, Keynes says uh, a serious conflict of evidence arose because estimates of savings in the United States made uh, by a popular survey that there's the names there, but um, not sure if I'm not allowed to, to say that, and also I may butcher the pronunciation. But estimates of savings made in the U.S. by popular uh, polls for the period since 1899 revealed no rise in percentage of income saved during the past half century despite a substantial rise in real income. According to Keynes' estimates, the percentage of income saved was much the same over the whole period, and the corresponding ratio of consumption expenditure to the income, the consistency of which means that it can be regarded as both the average and marginal propensity to consume, was decidedly higher than the marginal propensities that had been computed from time series or budget data. And Friedman goes on to say, finally, the savings ratio in the period after World War II was sharply lower than the ratio that it would have been consistent with the findings on relation between income and savings in the interwar period. This experience dramatically underlined the inadequacy of a consumption function relating the consumption or savings solely to current income. What, uh, what Friedman is saying is that there are more factors that determine whether or not a person's going to stimulate the economy with money that they are given, that you cannot just simply raise income and stimulate the economy. Now, we can 
take a two-pronged approach here. We can say that not only does data show us that people do not just blindly spend more when they are given more, and therefore the government should not simply hand out, hand back money, it's taxpayer money. And we can also say on the other side that because of data that we've collected since 2008 in terms of bailouts to actual um, economic production, remember the 12 to $7 trillion difference, I think we can make a case that says that stimulus payments are nothing more than a waste of money because it's going to increase inflation, it's going to increase taxation, and it may not all get reinvested in the economy. But that doesn't stop mayors and others from trying to buy votes. And this is the last statement here before we go to uh, before we go to break. Again, this was published hot off the presses just a couple minutes ago uh, uh, from Fox Business. Uh, this this is titled "Could Universal Basic Income Become a Reality?" Here are the mayors supporting free cash: Los Angeles, Atlanta, Newark, and others are saying that essentially. We need a universal basic income where everybody just gets money. Remember Zimbabwe. Heck, you can go back. I would argue that World War II started because of inflation. That the Nazis had no platform before inflation came along and destroyed the economy. And without the Nazis, you don't have the same aggressive foreign policies. Without the same aggressive foreign policies, you don't have uh, intervention in Poland. And without the intervention in Poland, you don't have a war in Europe. Now, again, maybe it's the Russians instead. Maybe it's uh, the Japanese um, in Asia. Regardless, without inflation, you don't have Germans as the big baddies. You don't have France getting run over. You don't have the, uh, the Holland and Belgium and Denmark and Norway and all of the, the places that were uh, taken by the, by the Nazis and by fascism in general. You don't have that without inflation. My point here is that Inflation and social consequences, finance and social consequences are directly correlated and because of that, politics and finance can't necessarily be separated. Now, does this mean that you should take all your money out of, the, uh, out of all of your accounts and just buy gold? No, absolutely not. Silver or any other precious metal, I don't care what you have, don't put it all there. But by the same token, not having a hedge against incompetent bureaucrats and politicians, these, these, listen, these mayors, look, they may know a lot more than I do. I'll grant them that. I'm just some guy with a microphone. I understand that. It's not hard to see what they're doing and they're trying to buy votes. They want to have the authority. They want their cake and they can eat it too. They want the authority to lock down the economy for as long as they want, uh, impose ridiculous restrictions, 
incomprehensible guidelines just to get that rush of power and they don't want the economic consequences. So they think, because what they've been taught, and trust me, I was taught that, that Keynesian economics is the way to go. That Keynesian economics is the only way to go in the modern economy. It's the only thing that works. Friedman in two pages destroys most of that. A simple history lesson ends most of that. So I'm sure, but I'm sure that these, these mayors have, were, were taught the same thing that I was. So not only do they think they're doing the right thing, they think they can buy votes, they think they can get themselves back into office by waving around the, this universal basic income and all it's going to be is economic ruination, at the very least, stagnation. This is not a good thing. This is something that we need to argue against. Something that we need to be wary of. And a way we can do that, at the very least, is by repositioning our portfolios. Maybe take the money that was, in, that, that was going into bonds. Bonds are worthless now. Rate cut, the rate has been cut, and I don't see them coming back. But moving on, and maybe a, a slightly more interesting story, Goldman Sachs is jumping in, uh, this article from Forbes, by saying that the U.S. economy could uh, be saved by a trillion dollars if we just enforce mask policies. We'll tell you what the big bankers are up to next on the Ken Prendeville Show. Stay with us. And the rain seems to have tapered off, so... Well, unfortunately, the news hasn't gotten hasn't tapered off at all. Uh, again, we're starting out here this uh, second segment with, and really, we're going to spend the entire segment on this. Uh, Forbes, well, I shouldn't blame them because they didn't say this. Uh, Goldman Sachs is basically come out and says we need a federal mandate for everyone to wear masks, or you know, we're going to lose another trillion dollars. This. This is stupid. I, again, I don't even know if the federal government has the constitutional right to force you to wear a mask. I know out here in, in, in other parts of rural Tennessee, look, people are distanced anyways. I, I understand if New York or California, and they say even Florida and Texas have increased rates of infection. Now, notice how they are no longer focusing on the deaths. Why is that? Well, it's because the deaths are going down. Younger people got it. Younger people were out protesting. Don't tell anybody I said that, but protesting in large numbers means that the coronavirus was more easily spread. Got to keep it a secret, though, or they'll dox me and divest me. I mean, this is this is insane. Really, we're 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 just gonna say that. Well, if you just federally enforced everybody to wear a mask, that the economy is safe because we won't have any more lockdowns. I got a better idea. Don't force anyone to wear a mask and don't lock down the economy. Problem solved. Again, because the people who get it at this point probably aren't going to die for what is it 40 percent of people are asymptomatic hell you or i could have it right now wouldn't know the difference 
But they say, of course, that if we enforce social distancing and we all wear a mask, that it would meaningfully increase mask usage across the country, this requirement, um, and that it would by it would increase it said the Goldman Sachs researchers estimate that it would uh, increase the amount of people wearing masks by 15% and cut the daily growth of new cases by one point uh, by one percentage point to just 0. 0.6 again how many people are being hospitalized from this though how many people are dying I will tell you the death rate's going down we just mentioned that but I mean, how many of these are even getting to the hospital, right? Because that was the whole point. We don't want the whole hospital system to be overwhelmed, so we have to lock down state of emergencies. Um, uh, how many, uh, again, for some people, most people, it's a cold. Some people, they don't know they have it. There's a small percentage where it's deadly. Uh, if you're fat and you got AIDS um, or if you're old, you know, then it's, then it's bad. Then it's deadly. This has a lot to do with control. And the fact that they're threatening, the fact that if you don't let us force you to wear a mask, we're going to lock down the economy again. That's what they're saying. Make no mistake about it. I mean, can you imagine that? I'd be one, you know, that would risk jail time because the government isn't going to force me to do anything. You know, obviously, if I'm doing everything within the social contract and within my rights. Now, am I going to intentionally get the uh, get the virus and go to grandma's house? No. But I don't believe it's all that important for me to wear a mask. If somebody does believe that they should wear a mask and that they would be healthier wearing it. Then knock, uh, knock yourself out. Go wear a mask. Have fun. You know, I'll still talk to you. I'm not... Uh, the alternative to not forcing people to wear a mask is not banning masks. And I think that's where a lot of people, especially on the left, get confused. That we're not saying we should ban masks. We're just saying we shouldn't force people to wear them. And like we said a couple shows ago, I don't think you're a bunch of drooling idiots who can't take care of themselves. And maybe that's what the, how the politicians see you. Maybe that's how these people at Goldman Sachs see you, that you're so... Because you didn't go to Harvard, because you don't have the banking degrees that they do, because you don't live in the same communities that they do. That you can't take care of yourself. That you need to be forced to wear a mask. Listen, if you work in an old folks home, you should probably wear a mask. If you're in the service industry, maybe it's a good idea to wear a mask. Again, I don't think it should be forced. You know whether or not you're endangering others and whether or not you should wear a mask. You don't need the government to tell you otherwise. And you especially don't need Goldman Sachs. Who, again, so well run that they needed to bail out money. Now I get there are more layers to that, but I'm, what I'm saying is that 
uh, I'm sure those of you listening to me right now have been bankrupted far fewer times than Goldman Sachs. What I can't get over here is the language used in this article. And this, again, is not from the reporter. I don't want Forbes. I don't want you to think that I'm blaming Forbes for this. It's Goldman Sachs basically saying that reducing the spread of the virus through forced mask wearing could be a substitute for strict lockdown measures. And that's where they're getting their $1 trillion. So they're saying force... We're going to force you to do A or we're going to force you to do B. The government doesn't have the power to do that. I would argue that they don't have the power to lock down the economy. That free trade and free business are part and parcel of the Constitution. And I'm sure there are some lawyers that would debate me on that and, and, and probably win. But there's a certain ethos, a certain feeling to being an American that this goes against. That if you have a good grasp on, on history and where we came from and the European Enlightenment and what our founders believed and the fact that there was a pandemic, a smallpox pandemic in the middle of the revolution and we still fought shows you what the, the founders thought about diseases like this. Now, we'll leave this segment with this Benjamin Franklin quote. Those who desire safety over liberty shall have neither. Just think about that while we head to break. All right, when we come back, a little lighter, as we're going to talk about, uh, we're going to follow up on this Facebook story, and uh, we'll end with Subway and their uh, footlong deal that um, franchisees are not so happy about. Stay with us. Well, the birds are still chirping, the heat is still hot, and the rain is still falling. It is still Wednesday. The uh, Kevin Perneville show is still going as we are here in the final segment. And real quick, and I, we should get at you out here in oh, about five minutes. Uh, not too much here, but I did want to follow up on uh, Facebook and because uh, we talked about it in the past two episodes where I and I still believe that companies, if they were actually seeing a re return from Facebook ads, they would not be pulling out. So my contention is twofold. One, that social media advertising is not all that it's cracked up to be. And two... Facebook should not have to bow down to these leftist activists. But they kind of have to. $57 billion is a lot of money to lose very quickly. So finally, Facebook talks about this, and this is coming to us from Fox Business, where uh, their president of global affairs, Nick Clegg, basically said uh, that they do not profit from hate which is a stupid tagline anyways. I think anyone with a brain knows that. But he says, I want to be unambiguous. Facebook does not profit from hate. Billions of people use Facebook and Instagram because they have good experiences and they don't want to see hateful content. Our advertisers don't want to see it and we don't want to see it. There's no incentive for us to do anything but remove it. But everything, he continued though and said, 
Everything that is good, bad, or ugly in our societies will find expression on our platform. It's kind of how it should be. Just because, again, Facebook is not a publisher. Just because you write something on their wall does not mean that, you, that, that, that they support it. You know, I post this show on Facebook. I'm sure I've said stuff that they don't agree with at their corporate office. But they're not a publisher. They're not condoning it. And I believe I should be responsible for what I post. If I were to post something racist or actually hateful, so, you know, anti-Semitic or whatever you want to say, I should bear the consequence of that, not Facebook. That again, like any society, I can I should be able to say whatever I want, no matter how heinous. And if the society does not condone it, then I will face the social consequences. And should face the social consequences. That's how free speech works. Now again, if Facebook wants to censor things, they have the right to do that as a business. I think so. But the Anti-Defamation League and NAACP are, I think, stepping out of bounds here. And again, I think they're trying to just get conservatives silenced. They've been doing it since the beginning of the Trump administration, and here we are. Now, the other thing we mentioned about stock market speculation and Facebook stocks has come to fruition. There's been a $10 change in Facebook stocks, or it's up 4% because speculators feel now that the stock's undervalued. So if you had people freaking out and it was part of their mutual fund and they sold it uh, yesterday, when they put in the buy orders to get it back, they've already lost out. Because it's going to go up and up and up until it hits its true value. Then it's going to crawl up a few higher points as the speculators pull out and all you've got is long-term buy and holds and you've got the stock that's doing reasonably well. Maybe you have a few additional people buying in if Facebook makes a move. Artificially inflates the stock. You have a market correction or contraction. It falls down again. Long-term buy and holds. Sell. Speculators come back when it's below true value. And the cycle repeats. That's how it works. And we're seeing that in action right now. Speaking of companies, Subway, uh, they are shifting their two for ten dollar deal uh, to digital only orders because the franchisees uh, in droves are saying these are hurting our bottom line and we were already crushed by uh, COVID. And on top of that, Subway wasn't doing too hot after the whole Jared Vogel thing. Uh, uh, there's one, and this again is a Fox Business article, and this is a quote here. That one operator told the Post last month that the initial $5 footlong promotion was launched in 2008 when labor rates at, were at $7.50 an hour. However, they have since jumped to $15 an hour in whatever state this guy's in. And another franchise owner discovered that they would be out nearly $1,000 every week, even with Subway helping to offset the cost. And this is, in the final point I want to make today, this is the problem when you buy into a franchise is that the corporate office at the end of the day controls it and 
even if you are going to be out in terms of money, in this case, Subway needs to get people back in the door. And the way that, that corporate sees the best way for them to be able to do that is to ha uh, have this promotion. Even if the business owners in terms of the franchisees know that it's not good for them. Franchises are great when you've got a name brand and, you know, if you can buy into a number of McDonald's or, you know, a lot of football stars will do this, where they'll buy into dealerships and pizza companies and all this stuff. And all of that's well and good when it's going great. But this is the other side of it. When it's not going so great. Maybe you bought into Burger King or Hardee's. We just had a one of the we had the largest uh, franchise uh, franchisee uh, of Pizza Hut and Wendy's just go under because of COVID. This is just an example, another example of why. Now they don't have the same problems that Subway does, but at the same time. They have the same coronavirus restrictions that Subway had to deal with and without the financial troubles that Subway has been in. So you can see why this is a problem and why I don't always promote people investing into businesses or franchises. But that'll do it for today's episode of the Kevin Prendeville Show. Thanks again for inviting me into your home car or however you're listening to us. Uh, again, uh, I hope I was able to impart some sort of knowledge on you and uh, that you'll be able to use going into the future. Uh, with that being said, we'll be back tomorrow with a personal finance episode, and on Friday, we'll wrap up the Kevin Prendeville Show for this week. Uh, that'll be on the 3rd. Have a great 4th of July.